You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The groups that we're talking about out here, as well as others that we are aware of uh, having the motivation to create some sort of disturbance or uh, influence our elections. That's Vikram Takor. He's a technical director at Symantec. The research we're discussing today is titled Subverting Democracy, How Cyber Attackers Try to Hack the Vote. Uh, They are active, or at least we've seen them active time to time over the last few years. In fact, uh, the last time we saw one of these groups was uh, just a couple of months ago. They're in various stages, but they are trying to uh, create uh, some sort of disinformation or they're trying to gather information from some election-related authorities uh, with what motivation. uh, That's always hard to tell. Uh, but at least we know that they are around. Can we start off, can you give us a little overview of what we saw back in the 2016 election? So in the 2016 election, one of the things which became public was uh, John Podesta's email account actually got compromised uh, by a simple phishing technique where somebody sent him an email uh, asking him to change his password. Uh, and John uh, did not think uh, much about the email. Uh, He went ahead and clicked on the link, which took him to a page which appeared as though uh, it was a legitimate uh, email provider's website, but it actually wasn't. It was a website controlled by an attacker. And when he went through the process of inputting his password over there and trying to uh, create a new password out there, he effectively gave his password and his credentials over to an attacker. And what happened after 
is fairly well documented in the public domain, which is the attackers were able to get a hold of his email, get a hold of a lot of information. And, and what that effectively did was uh, the information becoming public or the information from his email becoming public uh, created a little bit of a disturbance within uh, the normal election cycle that one would imagine. I mean, uh, not only does it throw into disarray the campaign itself, uh, but there's a whole bunch of uh, people who then get involved in uh, trying to track the attack, trying to figure out whether a certain country might be behind the attack overall. Uh, but uh, effectively, this, this this sort of takes us away a little tangential from the normal uh, election uh, process, if you would imagine, where candidates just go out, they campaign, they influence, or uh, they convince uh, voters to go one way or the other, the voters go to poll, uh, and somebody gets elected. So we think that there are actors or there are attackers out there who will uh, continue to try to create these little disturbances within our own election process. Now, I, I think for your average person out there, when they think about the possibility of election hacking, I think one of the things that would come to mind first would be with the, the use of computerized election voting machines, that those machines themselves could be hacked and people would be afraid of you know, the, the vote totals, the tallies being changed by outsiders. Um, but th that ended up not being something that we really saw. I think you're you're absolutely correct. The first thing that people think about when when somebody mentions the phrase election hacking is is the end uh, user or the the citizens perception that uh, we're really just talking about electronic equipment which is being used to tally votes getting compromised in one way or another. What people do not realize is that the hacking or the term hacking in this case goes far beyond that electrical equipment or that electronic equipment. In this case, rather than going for the equipment themselves, the attackers, they believed that, hey, there's enough way to sway a voter's uh, decision from one way to another or put them into this little uh, state of flux where they're not even sure which candidate to vote for using information or using social techniques where uh, you might be influenced by a news article that you're reading on one of your social media sites or you might be influenced when you actually get to see some stolen emails or some classified documents from another source. So people really need to be cognizant of the information that they're reading but also the information sources that they are now being subject to. And it's exactly for that reason that Symantec actually made, made uh, a, a technology of theirs or technology of ours uh, publicly available because we want people to uh, be able to visit uh, election-related websites with a lot more confidence that they are uh, dealing with legitimate organizations and this is not some sort of a scam website being hosted by different people. There are a, a pair of cyber espionage groups in particular that you all were tracking here. Can you describe to us who are we talking about and, and what do we know about them? So the groups have been, uh, the two groups uh, uh, they, that we mentioned, they've been around for a number of years. And when they actually started out their campaigns or their attacks a number of years ago, uh, they were not very different from some of the other attack groups that we track where the end goal over there is 
is to acquire intellectual property from uh, different companies. So you would imagine, hey, if I went over to, uh, if I was somehow able to attack a company that was a defense contractor building the next generation of fighter planes, maybe there's enough intellectual property to be stolen from that organization where I can go to a third country, give that information and make that same technology for cheaper. So that's how all these groups really started. But the mandate for these particular two groups grew uh, pretty rapidly because soon after their successes in being able to target corporations, uh, their mandate shifted to attacking government organizations. Now, there have been several public articles over the years about these groups uh, attacking uh, defense establishments in the United States, uh, diplomatic organizations all across the globe. And when you, if, if one was to think about the purpose of attacking these organizations, they're purely strategic. They're not as tactical as they used to be where somebody's stealing intellectual property or the formula to make a certain good. Attacking defense organizations as well as diplomatic organizations globally really just gives you insight into what other parties are capable of strategizing against your government or against your uh, your uh, one's government's interests. And that became the centerpiece of the information uh, that these attack groups were uh, focused on. So the attacks did not occur uh, be between these two groups. They did not occur against private organizations. They shifted against governments. And these two groups have kind of gone on. And uh, some of this information about some of these groups' activity has been documented in the past few months where different entities have come forward and not only uh, pinned their activity um, as being sponsored by uh, the Russian government, but also uh, detailing how these connections have been made and what it is that these attackers are trying to do to influence the common man's uh, view about the world, uh, elections, certain parties, certain individuals, and governments for that matter. Now let's go through each of them one at a time. We, we're talking about uh, APT-28 and APT-29. They go by many names. Let's start with APT-28, what are some of the other names that uh, people might recognize them as being? So, uh, Symantec's name for APT-28 is Swallowtail. Uh, that's just an internal, or that's just our bug name that we've assigned to that group. Uh, another name that people might actually recognize uh, for Swallowtail or APT-28 would be Fancy Bear. Uh, it's a name which has been uh, given to this group by one of our uh, one of our peers in the industry. I think that would be the main ones uh, for uh, APT-28. For 29, for APT-29, uh, our internal name or our name is Fritillary. It's just another bug name that Symantec picks. Mm -hmm. But other names that people might recognize them by would be Cozy Bear, uh, Euro APT, uh, Cozy Duke. Uh, Duke seems to be a very common uh, phrase inside uh, the names which have been associated to APT-29. And also there's another name called uh, Ice Sheet. But uh, these, are, these all essentially track back to the exact same group, which people commonly refer to as APT-29. So let's start with APT-28. Take us through what sort of uh, tactics do they use and who are they after? 
So APT28, um, they they use pretty common tactics uh, like sending people phishing emails um, or uh, hosting watering hold sites. But this is exactly when they wanted um, data from some very precise locations, be it a particular uh, diplomatic organization that exists somewhere or some news-related website related to a very particular subject. So these guys, uh, APT28 has been around since at least 2007. And uh, initially they targeted military, embassy related targets, as well as defense contractors in Europe and North America. Uh, But since then, they've sort of moved on to uh, more uh, focused um, attacks against government institutions. And what specific types of tools do they usually use? So their tools are uh, fairly generic in in some sense, but uh, they are very custom written for them. Uh, Two of them come to mind very immediately. One is what we would call a backdoor, but essentially if it is a file that gets onto your computer and it starts running, it allows somebody sitting in somewhere uh, all across the globe to be able to access all the information on your computer um, as though they were actually sitting right in front of it. So that's one of the tools. We call that a backdoor because essentially it has given somebody uh, backdoor access into your computer. And the other one is uh, what we call a a tunnel. So uh, information flows on the internet from from one computer all the way to the other. But if you want to create a a virtual tunnel that data is not accessible to anybody else. Uh, we're just looking at the tunnel, but except on the two endpoints of the tunnel. APT28 did create such a tunnel as their own tool where uh, the, a tunnel is created between the victim computer and some infrastructure that the attacker is actually using. And the data which is being stolen just goes through that tunnel, which might spread across multiple countries, but it is a tunnel and their tool allows them to sort of encrypt the information and pass it from one point to the other without anybody else being able to see it. So these are sort of the two main tools that um, Sophacy or APT28 or Swallowtail have used over many years. And the development of these tools have gone on for a long time. By that, I mean the group has been uh, updating these tools very regularly uh, to avoid somebody else being able to find it. So let's move on to APT29 and contrast them against 28. What, what, uh, what's the difference here? Who are we talking about? So APT29 has been slightly different in their, in their targeting, where uh, for a very long time they have been after private research and international policy um, think tanks or related organizations. And they use uh, a bunch of tools that, you know, people commonly just call the dupes or uh, that's because at least in the industry or the security industry, there have been many terms used for these. Uh, there's Cozy Duke, there's C Duke, there's Dionys Duke, and there's Net Duke. But essentially all these tools were created in a very specific programming language and they are meant for different purposes, but ultimately all they do is they give access to the attacker uh, onto a victim's computer. So uh, while their targeting and their tool set is completely different, or should I say slightly different, uh, it's very easy to make out the difference between uh, the attack campaigns of the two different groups out here. 
Now we are heading into the 2018 midterm elections. What sort of activity are we seeing from these groups? So what we've seen from the groups is pretty much more of the same in terms of targeting and their usage of the tools. And I want to say that, you know, we've been very good about uh, protecting end users and end organizations against the attacks of these groups when it comes to the malware itself. So on the technical side, I think we're doing very well and uh, we'll continue to do what we can as an industry to, to get better at it. Where we're seeing a shift uh, of some of these resources from within these groups is in this information warfare business where uh, they're trying to get to information that can be released at critical critical times to make an impact on decision-making of the end users rather than trying to influence technology or trying to influence computer systems which are directly uh, part of the election process. And we think that that method or that that process or that thinking is going to continue and over the coming months as well as years and subsequent elections as well, we think that will play a, a bigger and bigger role rather than uh, hacking of electronics being used in the elections themselves. Yeah, it strikes me that it's an interesting shift and, and I wonder how much uh, you think it may be from necessity, if we are doing a better job technically locking down these systems, then uh, you know, I suppose uh, the folks who are trying to do this stuff don't have a whole lot of choice. They have to switch to those those uh, softer targets, the influence operations and those sorts of things. I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, one of the things which also goes into their thinking, uh, which we believe is uh, when you when you compromise a, a piece of electronic equipment and you tamper with uh, let's say the tallies uh, for uh, specific uh, elections, that will get discovered at some point. Even if it didn't get discovered at timeline point zero, it might get discovered five days later. And when that happens, there will be methods by which we can revert some of those um, uh, changes which have been influenced by the attackers, uh, be it backup voting, uh, backup paper voting systems or backups of uh, the, the electronic equipment itself, but there might be ways for us to move back from there. The attackers figured that a much longer goal, longer term goal would be to influence the mindset of the water itself rather than trying to go in and make this one-time change, which is extremely binary in terms of Either you get caught or you don't get caught. And the risk would be much higher on that side. A much longer goal would be to work on uh, disinformation and try to influence uh, the voter himself. And I think that's where they've sort of hedged their bets uh, primarily at this point. Now, in, in terms of, of IDing these groups as being Russian-based, I mean, this is an area where both Homeland Security and the FBI have been uh, pretty direct at, at who they think is up to these things, yes? Yes. I mean, very recently, the U.S. government actually put out a note um, calling uh, some of these actors out, not just by country and affiliation, but also naming some of these individuals very specifically and talking about exactly what these people did um, to influence or to uh, make an impact on uh, the elections which happened a couple of years ago. Now, in terms of voters' confidence in the integrity of our election system, when you know, we have the news from 2016 that, that we had these issues, 
what is your sense in terms of of um, what we should tell the general public? Are we getting better? Are are we the, pretty much where we were in 2016? Where do you think we stand? I think from a technology uh, and awareness perspective, I think we are definitely in a much better place than we were in 2016. Both the uh, the technology companies as well as uh, the common citizen are much more aware of tactics being used by attackers to influence our thinking. The technology teams uh, all across the industry have taken steps to try to weed out uh, some of the false information that might be floating around. They've tried to weed out um, bogus accounts being created by some attackers to spread the, these uh, incorrect stories which are uh, on social media. So that is continuing to go uh, to, to get better and better. And we expect that in the coming months and weeks and even beyond this election cycle of ours, Technology will become even better where uh, only reputed or confirmed news outlets or news sources uh, will be able to portray or will be able to pitch their news story to millions and millions of people across the globe. But that's on the technology side. We also see that uh, end users are becoming a lot more aware and questioning the source of information that they're reading online. I think that is uh, where we're in a natural progression where it'll be a matter, it's just a matter of time before we get even better and user awareness continues to grow to a point where we're fairly convinced that people will not just look at the news article, but will also look at the sources. And uh, that's obviously going to take a little bit longer uh, time, but I think we're, we're getting there and we're no doubt we're way better than where we were in 2016. Our thanks to Vikram Thakur from Symantec for joining us. The research is titled Subverting Democracy, How Cyber Attackers Try to Hack the Vote. We'll have a link for it in the show notes. You can also find it on the Symantec website. And now a word from our sponsor, Six Sense. SixSense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With SixSense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixSense, visit SixSense.com. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.